Hello and welcome to the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. I don't have any sort of uh, announcement on the return of a certain video game. That was pretty notable, um, I'd say. A lot of people in the college football world, my entire Twitter feed for a solid, like, I don't know, I think it was about 20 minutes, I couldn't see anything else. If there was a time to drop some sort of major sanctions that your university had, not Tennessee, um, whatever, this would have been the ultimate time for a great news dump because the return of a certain college football video game, my goodness, I mean, I, I knew people loved that game and like some of the Coach Doug stuff that happened, you know, over the summer with, you know, with Big Cat. Obviously, like the nostalgia for the game was crazy, but my goodness gracious, I, that was like my first memory of a football video game was Peyton in Tennessee way back in the day. Like that would have been 97. I used to run Tebow to death in NCAA 2007. Although it's not going to be called NCAA 2007 though, is it? That's that's the strange thing I can't get around. Will, you saw this tweet and you were like, it's on, let's go. I think you're a bigger gamer than I am. Is that is that is that safe to say? Yeah, no, I for a while only played sports games and as the sports games have kind of gone downhill, I've gotten into other games recently. But to me, like that was I hate to sound like a boomer man, but NCAA fourteen was like the last good sports game to me. I think there's a lot of people who would agree with that. A lot of people. And if you saw the Darren Ravel tweet sort of pouring cold water onto all of it and saying, yeah, the name image likeness stuff, it's going to make this a bit more of a work in progress. Yeah, of course, Darren had to go out there and, and do that. But still, let's just appreciate good news because it's 2021 and we don't get enough of that. So yeah, my, my one of my first thoughts was, would Devontae Smith actually have to be worse in the video game than in real life? I think so, because you just make him as good as he was in real life this past year. That doesn't really seem fair in video game. I, the name image likeness stuff is going to be a fascinating chapter with all this, just to see kind of how, how all this plays out with what we're going to be able to do from you know player name standpoint and being able to actually play as your favorite player in this video game and not just, oh, you know, number, you know, number 12 on, on Florida, or just assuming that that's the same sort of guy, despite that, the fact that everybody just ups, uploads the rosters anyways. I mean, that's what everybody does. Oh, I was about to say, yeah, now that we have, now that Reddit is so much bigger, if they, as long as they just check that little box of like user created, it's on. Oh, good point. Good point. I, I saw the idea too of, putting the eight guys who won the Heisman Trophy on the next cover, which makes a lot of sense because those guys like kind of get to miss out on it. Why is Denard Robinson more worthy of being on the cover than Joe Burrow? I mean, let's let's be <laughs> honest here. Denard Robinson, what a great deal that he gets out of all this. Like Denard Robinson has been the face of this game for so unbelievably long. He lasted longer as the face of a video game than he did in the NFL, which is just an unbelievable thing to be able to do. Shout out to Shoelace, because that guy was electric back in the day. Um, I love seeing the recruiting graphics that go with it too. Saw one with Shane Beamer on it, South Carolina, really getting after it. Really cool stuff, South Carolina, putting that out there. Everybody should put that out there. Why wouldn't you? Lane was putting it out there, too. Everybody's going to be on the cover of this new video game, apparently. This is the beauty of Photoshop in 2021, is we can celebrate the return of a very popular video game by just pretending that we're all just going to be some massive part of it. I should have Photoshopped myself onto the video game. Haven't done that yet. Well, maybe we'll... Uh, We'll work something out, be able to, to set that up. We'll do like some sort of duo to be able to, to make that happen. All right, plan for today. We're not just going to talk video games. Got a lot to get to. Uh, we got Gene Chizik coming up in a little bit. We dug into some of these coaching trends, some Brian Harson, 
uh, Gus Malzahn things a lot more. Chizik is one of those people where I find myself in a significantly better mood every time I talk to him. Those are the people I like interacting with in this business. I've also got a few thoughts on something signing day related because after all it is National Signing Day. Um, and then I wanna get to Dan Mullen's current situation and why it's so weird. We're also gonna end with our new segment, hashtag figuring it out, wherein we discuss some adulting things that we wish we could tell ourselves, uh, well, we, we wish we could tell our 20 year old selves that and sometimes maybe even our 30 year old selves for those of us that have hit that point in life. But before we do all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you're obsessed with college football, you're going to want to get this newsletter. I talk about this all the time. It's free and it comes straight to your inbox, keeping you up to date on major news in college football in just a few minutes. To sign up, go to saturday.football. Yep, that's the website address. Go to your internet browser and punch in saturday.football. It's free, you can unsubscribe if you don't like it at any time. If you're like me though, and you love college football, I'm sure you'll love it. Check it out, go to saturday.football and add your email address today. Okay, first thing I wanna to get to because today is National Signing Day. Great question of who do stars matter for? You'll probably see a lot of people arguing about whether or not stars matter. There's nuance to this argument that some think is so black and white. You either have to be pro-recruiting or you have to be anti-recruiting. There's either fans obsessing about their team's ranking or tweets about some two-star guy who became a pro bowler. Ari Wasserman, he does great work covering recruiting for The Athletic. He's the ringleader of this Stars Matter movement. Ari's point is super simple. Yes, you should always want more talent on your team. The people who say talent doesn't matter, those teams don't win titles. Ari is absolutely right in that regard. 24-7 Sports started doing team composite rankings in 2015. Basically, it ranks teams solely on incoming talent via their star rating. It doesn't factor in development or anything like that. So since this was tracked in 2015, here are the national champions ranking on this in this system. 2015, Alabama was number one in the country. They had 15 five-stars on the roster. 2016, Clemson was number nine. They had four five-stars on the roster. Had another guy by the name of Deshaun Watson, too. 2017, Alabama was number one in the country in terms of talent. They had 18 five-stars on the roster. 2018, that historic Clemson team, they're only number six in talent, but they still had nine five-stars on the roster. 2019, LSU, the team that kind of came out of nowhere and had arguably the best season in college football history, they were still number five in terms of team composite talent. They had seven five-stars on the roster. 2020, Alabama, another historically good team, they were number two in the country in team composite talent. They had 12 five-stars on the roster. The average ranking of the national champion in terms of team composite talent, number four. No ranking worse than number nine since this started being tracked. That team, again, had Deshaun Watson. The average number of five stars on the roster is 11. That's for national champions the last six years. Even LSU's surprise run in, 2019, in 2019 had seven five stars on the roster. People that say that Joe Burrow was just kind of doing this with a bunch of three stars, those people are very, very casual college football fans, I would assume. That wasn't the case at all, obviously. Since this was tracked in 2015, Every team who won a playoff game had at least four or five star players on the roster. If your team isn't recruiting five star talent, you aren't winning a title. Not with this system. That's not just a dig at the Power Five or the group of five teams who are judged 
based on that. Look back on the teams who got smoked in the playoff semifinal. 2015 Michigan State, good God, that team got trucked. Connor Cook, shout out to him. They were ranked number 23 in the country in composite talent. They had one five-star recruit on the roster. 2015 Oklahoma, had Baker Mayfield, pretty good team. They were still only ranked number 16 in team composite. They had one five-star recruit on the roster. 2016 Washington, I thought they actually kind of hung around Alabama a little bit longer than I expected to, but still, they were only ranked number 24 in composite talent. They didn't have a single five-star recruit on the roster. Even that 2016 Ohio State team that got smoked by Clemson, they got shut out by Clemson. They were ranked number five in talent, but they only had three five-star recruits on the roster. 2018 Notre Dame, they were number 10 in team composite talent. They had one five-star recruit on the roster. This past Notre Dame team actually had a better chance of competing in the semifinal because it had three five-star recruits and it was still only number eight in terms of talent. Unless you have Deshaun Watson or maybe Trevor Lawrence, good luck. If you're trying to win a championship, stars matter, especially in the playoff era. Urban Meyer just said how he used to check those rankings every day. He checked that all the time. You think Nick Saban signing the highest rated recruiting class ever in 2021 just doesn't matter and it's just not significant? I hope those people don't actually exist. This whole thing is like sitting down at the World Series of Poker. Sure, you can win hands with deuce seven offsuits sometimes. Yeah, the kids call it deuce, that's right. You, you could pick up, you know, you can kind of pick up hands here and there, you can pick your spots, you can bluff, but you can't bluff every time. And you can't hope to hit flops with rags every single time and win at such a high level. You don't need pocket aces every hand to win the World Series of Poker, that's true. But at some point, you gotta hit cards. You need legit hands. You aren't surviving that long without hitting an ace high flush on the turn. Stars don't determine individual success. Being a five-star recruit is like pocket aces. It doesn't matter necessarily that you have five, you know, that if you're a five-star recruit, it doesn't necessarily determine that you are going to win the hand with pocket aces. Sometimes you think your hand is better than it is. Sometimes you get unlucky with an injury or maybe it's a coaching change. If you're going to play do seven offsuit, which is considered the worst hand in poker, you might have to take a less traditional path. We write and talk about these guys all the time. Three years ago, I'm writing about this tight end who's getting ready for the draft. I asked this guy, he's probably gonna be a day three pick. I'm like, why, why were you a two-star recruit with one legit offer? He's like, ah, I was playing the wrong position, really wasn't big enough, wasn't fast enough. By the time this guy graduated, he was in a totally different spot. He worked with the highest paid strength coach in America. He switched from receiver to tight end, and he had some NFL-ready mentors help him at the position. That guy was George Kittle, turned out to be pretty good. Stars didn't matter to George Kittle, they didn't matter to J.J. Watt, and they don't matter to someone like Chris Rodriguez. Who's Chris Rodriguez, you ask? He's not a baseball player, he's not Benny the Jet Rodriguez. He does acknowledge, though, that he has a great baseball name. He actually was gonna play baseball, but then he missed the tryout his junior year. His grandpa was always like, you gotta play baseball, it's where the money's at. Anyway, that's not why you care about this conversation. Chris Rodriguez, he's the Kentucky running back who is coming back in the 2021 season as Pro Football Focus's highest graded running back in America. So why wasn't he a five-star guy out of high school? Well, you know, kind of somewhat typical story. He's small school off the beaten path in Georgia, about 30 miles southeast of Atlanta. He played three sports. He didn't do the whole camp circuit thing. He wasn't going to all these seven on sevens. He didn't jump off the screen on film because of his initial burst. His high school coach basically begged Kentucky assistant Matt House. He's like, take another look. I promise you're gonna see more when you actually watch him on film. Don't just watch the first three plays. 
take a second look, see what others can. Sure enough, he does. So he ends up getting an offer from Kentucky. Chris Rodriguez goes to a place with a great mentor. He goes to the right culture, you know, strength program. He thrives just focusing on football, lifting weights. He plays in a system that really allows him to run in between the tackles. That was what his skill set was going to lend itself to be able to do. Any one of those things falls through, though, and he's not in this current spot. Recruiting evaluators are far from perfect. Even in this era with so many resources, they whiff like the rest of us. So much can change between a guy going from a high school recruit to an NFL prospect. Certain individuals just need the right strength program. They need a set schedule. Others just need the right coach or the right mentor. That's all well and good for individual success. But you aren't winning a national title with a bunch of whiffs. You aren't even winning a playoff game with a bunch of whiffs. Sorry, 2017 UCF. You weren't winning a national title with the number 55 composite talent team. So who do stars matter for? Sure, if I'm a two-star recruit, I'm telling myself every day that stars don't matter. George Kittle, number 199 in terms of the receiver rankings in his class. This year, that's a kid named Jamal Edrine. He's going to FAU. Who knows, Jamal, maybe you're the next George Kittle, man. He might need to add some bulk to that 190-pound frame, though. Uh, the good news, stars don't determine where you are four years from now. But if I'm a team who wants to compete for championships, I'm telling myself that stars absolutely matter, and my team doesn't have a chance without them. Something else that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I've been trying to come up with the right words to say this, and I've simply gotten to this conclusion. I don't know what Dan Mullen's future holds. A little context here, because in case you don't know what I'm talking about, Dan Mullen's in a really strange spot. And, and I think this is still true, despite the fact that he just landed LSU transfer Eric Gilbert. Well, as an LSU fan, that's gotta be that's gotta be one of the tougher transfer pills to swallow in recent memory for you. Oh man, that might make the top ten list of th bad things that have happened to us this year. <laughs> top ten. That's pretty good. Gosh, there's been so many. There's been so many. Weird story. Weird story. But good for Florida to be able to pull in somebody like that. But as for Mullen, you probably heard that there were these NFL rumblings. Even Schefter was out there reporting it. And I, you know, typically I brush that off when it comes to Mullen or James Franklin or Dabo. I, I, I went into this whole diatribe about how big time coaches in today's day and age actually don't leave straight from college to the NFL. And it's just entirely about leverage. The agent floats this out there. If there's any sort of inquiry, everyone sees it. They start talking about it and a coach gets to see where he stands. I thought this entire year that Dan Mullen just wants to know where he stands. He's three years into his initial six-year deal, and he hasn't signed an extension yet. Scott Strickland, Florida Athletic Director, said right before the pandemic that something was in the works. Then COVID happens. More specifically, then this year happens. Again, I cannot remember another 8-4 and four season quite like the one Florida had. Publicly, there was, there was a lot of drama. The pack the swamp, the pack the swamp comment after AM. There was the outburst that started the Mizzou brawl. Yes, he did start that. Florida fans, trust me when I say this, go back and watch the All 22. There was the shoe throw against LSU, of course, wherein he defended it after, and it just wasn't a good look at all. Will, you celebrated that one really, really well, if I recall, <laughs> that night. Yeah, that was, I mean, the thing is, man, if you want, it's. It's more fun to be fun than it is to be good. And I will say this, Florida's season was very fun this year. Every week was they were just destroying teams or it was like, oh, we don't have it. So like, hats off, they, I probably watched more Florida games than any team but LSU and every one of them was compelling. The bowl game too. 
Disaster. What a day. Just an absolute disaster. And I know you were texting during that as well. I, I knew it was weird because it's never fully a normal situation when you finish with all those things kind of adding up and coming to a head. But then the Brian Johnson thing happened. For those who don't know, Brian Johnson was Florida's offensive coordinator slash quarterbacks coach. He was Dan Mullen's right-hand man for six of the last seven years. That was three years at Florida and three years at Mississippi State with a year at Utah sandwich, or I think it was, it was Houston sandwich in between. Dan Mullen promoted him to offensive coordinator right before the start of the year. Johnson actually became the first black offensive coordinator ever at Florida. People at Florida knew that he was destined for bigger and better things. They were saying that before the start of the year, and pretty much what played out afterwards confirmed that. He interviewed for the head job at South Carolina, didn't get it. He was interviewed for the head job at Boise State, didn't get it. I thought he'd interview for the UCF job too. Maybe that's going to happen. I think he'd still be a great candidate. But that apparently wasn't in the works at the time because last week, Johnson leaves Florida as the offensive coordinator slash quarterbacks coach to become the Eagles quarterbacks coach. I'm not criticizing his career choices, but that's a lateral move at best. That's when I thought something just doesn't sit right with me. Why would he take a job like that? That to me looks like a guy who's just trying to get out of town because that's always going to be on the table for him. So I reached out to a couple people that I trust with close ties to Florida. And let's just say these people are definitely a lot more positive than negative. Like they're not the people who are saying the sky is falling all the time. If anything, they're, they're, they're putting the positive spin on the negative stuff. So that's why it was noteworthy when both of them were like, yeah, this Brian Johnson thing, it is a mess. Apparently a blindsided Mullen, which I get. From what I was told, Brian Johnson was incredibly important back in August. Let's just say that Dan Mullen um, apparently didn't win over the locker room with the way he handled the summer of racial unrest. But it was Johnson who helped keep the ship afloat. So now he's gone. It feels like at this point, Dan Mullen has burned a bridge or two. I was told that Strickland wasn't thrilled about the Pack the Swamp deal. And maybe that could have changed had Mullen acted differently. But he kept sticking his foot in his mouth. And Florida fans, you can deny this all you want, but the reality is if another coach was saying this, you know that you'd be piggybacking on it. and be like, like if Kirby Smart were saying some of the things that Dan Mullen did, y'all would be all over him. And that's just 100% true. Mullen acted like a guy who was on two weeks notice more than the guy who was looking for a new deal. And understand that, that despite everything I just said, I've been pro-Mullen in this. I, I said coming into 2020 that there weren't five coaches I'd rather have. Well, I, I, I don't know how many times I texted you defending something Dan Mullen related, but it felt it felt very often like this was a conversation that we would always have and you were someone who was critical and say, Dan Mullen failing to win against the top 25 team here, there, and I'm just like, man, look at what he does with quarterbacks, look at the way that he develops guys, and look at what he's done in his first three years at Florida and the fact that you know he had the stat coming into this year of first ever coach to start off at a new place with two consecutive New Year's Six slash BCS bowl victories. That's good, that's really good. So I kind of just said, you know what? I'm gonna let that stuff do the talking. But these are weird circumstances heading into a contract negotiation. And I really don't know what's next. If he coaches through this season without a new deal, he'll have two, two years left on his deal, the original deal that he signed. With recruiting at the level that Florida wants to recruit at and expects to recruit at, no coach really has that few years left on a deal. So does Strickland give him a raise and an extension like what he originally talked about? 
Keep in mind that Dan Mullen's $12 million buyout would likely get a significant increase. $12 million buyouts in this day and age, as you heard me say last week, it's really not that much. That's really not that much. <laughs> then if that happens and Mullen can't maybe keep his staff on board or th there continues to be these things that add up, and let's say he goes seven and five. I'm not saying he's going seven and five. Florida could be in a position where it's winning 10 games, easily going to another New Year's Six Bowl, and this whole thing is moot. But if that happens, then there's major buyers from Morris all of a sudden. Strickland isn't going to fire a coach who started with three New Year's Six Bowl first. I'm not saying that. He doesn't have to because Mullen's under contract. But if there is that contract divide and neither side wants to budge, this Mullen to the NFL stuff, does that gain a little bit more traction? I know that the NFL jobs are basically filled at this point, but who knows with that? Because if that door hasn't closed fully, then that's still at least kind of on the table. It just feels like a really strange stalemate to be at. I once thought that Dan Mullen would spend 12 to 15 years in Florida. I thought he'd win a couple SEC titles. I thought maybe he'd get to a national title and he was going to crank out yearly top 15, top 10 finishes for a decade plus. He can still do that. He's finally getting his style of quarterback in there. Tell Florida fan what you think about Emory Jones and watch them go run it. Man, that is, that is quite the conversation starter. But I have less and less confidence in this, in this belief that Dan Mullen is going to provide this stability than I once did. You've got to get along with your top assistants. Above all else, you've got to be on the same page as your boss. And right now, I'm not sure that Dan Mullen has either of those things working for him. Will, you've been pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Critical. I'll say critical of Dan Mullen. Is, th is this a fair thing to say at this stage going into year four? Well, I'll say this to put a bow on all this. You know, Dan Mullen versus Kirby is such just an apex argument about recruiting versus kind of brains. Because that system works, man. And if you go all the way back to when he got the Mississippi State job at the beginning with Booby Dixon, they were pounding the ball. I mean, that dude had, I think, more carries than Mark Ingram did. Uh, Ingram's Heisman, you're very close to it, like, per game, because they played more games, obviously. But it's like, he's been able to adapt every year, and his scheme has shown time and time again it can win. And then you look at Kirby, who kind of just trots out the same, for pretty close to the same thing every year, but his talent is so overwhelming that it almost just doesn't matter. And I'd say, you know, if you're a Florida fan, the one thing you can feel good about is that if your head coach calls your plays, your floor is so much higher. I mean, it would be so hard for their offense to get sideways because Mullen's ultimately in control. But like we were talking about, the recruiting just probably isn't where it needs to be. And, and credit to Dan Mullen for using the portal and things like that. But it really is a fascinating case of system versus talent. There's really not a comp to Mullen's situation. And... You know, I know Florida fans are frustrated that the Gators aren't on the same level of recruiting as, as Georgia, and that's, that's not going away anytime soon. And I've said, give it time, give it time. Those Florida connections are really hard to establish. But, you know, I, I think right now with Mullen, we're, we're in a spot where we're still trying to figure out what all this is going to look like moving forward because it's not just some narrative. It's about getting your boss on the same page and understanding that you've got a job to do, you'd like to be able to do it together, but there's just no guarantee that everything works out as originally planned. So, my thoughts on Dan Mullen moving forward. I'm sure he's a guy that we'll talk about just a little bit this offseason. Let's go to my interview with Gene Chizik. Chizik was, he was awesome. He was absolutely awesome. We talked about all things Auburn, the way defenses are heading, and you know, a bunch of other stuff. So, here is Gene Chizik. 
I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is one of my favorite people in college football, Gene Chizik. Gene, you, you tweeted something a couple weeks ago that's been stuck inside my head. You tweeted, when we start a sentence with no offense, it's pretty certain we are getting ready to say something offensive. Just saying. Hashtag words of chisdom. You, you know, you're absolutely right. Don't get me wrong. But I'm going to give it a try. No offense, but I sort of love that you haven't taken any coaching jobs yet because it means we get another season to watch you on SEC Network. I think I just did it, right? <laughs> hey, you know what, Connor? That's the first or, look, one of the only no offense uh, statements that's not offensive. Thank you. Uh, that's actually uh, very complimentary and very kind of you, so I appreciate that. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure this hasn't been addressed directly on the pod um, since, since you last came on, but I, I've got to ask, I, when the Mississippi State job opened up after Moorhead was fired, you were a candidate for it, and I know you don't want to throw anybody under the bus or anything like that, but the fit wasn't right for you. Can you explain what that's like when you're in the interview process and it just sort of clicks in your mind that a job isn't exactly going to be right and it's not going to be your next step. Yeah, you know, Connor, I mean, uh, yes, there was definitely interest on Mississippi State's part. Um, there's been interest on several people's uh, part in the last several years, both as head coaches and coordinators. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in those scenarios, uh, I'm just at the point in my life where I feel like uh, I can really uh, feel, I hate to say this because it sounds so self-serving, but I can be picky uh, if I'm going to go back into the coaching profession. I can be extremely picky. And not that Mississippi State was begging me to come and I was the only guy. That's, that's not what it was at all. Uh, I was from a list of candidates that were very qualified and – uh, they wanted to meet and visit with, which we did. Uh, but, you know, over the years since I've, uh, you know, gotten out of college coaching, you know, there's been several opportunities that have, that have come up, and it's just got to be right for me, Connor. It's got to be something that I feel like I can go to work every day and be extremely happy. And you know what? I'm okay with being an assistant. I don't have a problem with that. Probably – the most enjoyable two years I've had as a coordinator was when I was working with Larry Fedora after I had been fired as a head coach. One, I knew exactly what Larry wanted when, when I was sitting in that assistant seat because I had been in his. Uh, and two, I enjoyed having more hands-on with the players and, and not so much of a CEO-type approach. And uh, it was great to be back, you know, in the arena again as a coordinator. I loved it. I loved the strategy. I love working every day with the players. Uh, it was really fun to me. But uh, going back to a Larry Fedora scenario, he's a very good friend of mine. I knew what Larry was about. Our philosophies aligned, and he was going to let me run half the half the team. I mean, I, I was running half. You know, I was running the defense, and we made it very clear beforehand that you know I needed to have the autonomy to do that. He was the head coach. I was always going to comply uh, and, and be a soldier in the Army, uh, but I still needed a certain way that I needed to operate to be successful, and that's what I would really come to an agreement with with any head coach. And I, I told him, I said, I'm going to be the most respectful guy sitting around that table to you. 
And it's not that, you know, I've been involved in national championships or, you know, I've been a head coach at this place or that place. Um, I, I've been fired. I have the humility to be able to do that. But whether it's that coaching job as an assistant or a head coaching job, which there's been search firms that have reached out to me on several different occasions, uh, and I didn't even interview for the job because I just knew it wasn't a fit, and I don't like to waste people's time. So um, that's kind of how I proceed moving forward, and I'll never say never, but if the right one's out there, uh, I would definitely consider it for sure. Another one of your friends, uh, Gus, Gus Malzahn, the, the news of his firing. First of all, it, it's totally unfair that his buyout was like triple what yours was. I just want that known. I don't, I'm don't. i not asking you to react to that. I just want the world to know that. I, I know that you and Gus are, are, are tight. You live in that community. You know that administration. What was your reaction to it then? And has your opinion to all of that and the way that it played out, has it changed since you've had some time to be able to kind of take a step back from it? Well, Connor, because I, I, I am in this um, this bubble over here at Auburn, so to speak, and, and I am pretty close, closely tied with, you know, what may or may not be happening. Uh, I was shocked. I, I was coming out of church that Sunday, and I my phone had blown up with all these texts, um, you know, asking me if Gus had gotten released. And to my knowledge, they had just beaten Mississippi State, finished six and four. He's got everybody coming back. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think that was a possibility. So I literally texted one guy back and I said, not that I know of. Next thing I know, um, I start hearing from very credible people in the media world that this was a done deal. And, uh, you know, so immediately I texted Gus and I said, you know, is this true? You know, what's going on? And, uh, you know, within probably 30 minutes, uh, he had been, he had been let go and within 30 minutes he called me immediately and just kind of, you know, informed me that they'd made the decision to go in a different direction. I was shocked. I, I didn't think that that was uh, really warranted to be fair with you. And, and, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, he, he went three and seven on the year, you know, it, it was a six and four year and probably could have won, you know, seven games, but, you know, that's the nature of the beast. Uh, we all live with the realities that that could happen anytime. you got to pull your big boy pants up and move forward, and Gus is going to do that. And he'll get a great job next year. There will be several jobs open next year, and he'll, like I told him, I said that you'll have three or four to pick from next year. You just take the year off, recalibrate, and uh, figure out what you want to do next. But uh, I thought it surprised him to a degree. Uh, I thought it surprised, it definitely surprised me to a degree. But let's be honest, Connor, this day, the, the more I'm in the media side, the more I see how things unfold, and I'm not so singularly focused every day on my own program, uh, nothing surprises me anymore. It really doesn't, whether it's buyouts, size of buyouts, why they fired a guy, if, you know, what the strategy was to fire the guy so they don't have to pay him. Uh, I mean, I've seen it all, and nothing surprises me. Uh, I, I, I say that after I just said that I was kind of shocked, but as I really reflect from the 10,000 foot perspective, nothing, nothing surprises me anymore. I mean, they had to write him an $11 million check within 30 days and then he gets the rest paid out uh, in increments. But, um, you know, and people are going to make the argument in a pandemic. Are you kidding me? Uh, my answer to that is don't let anything shock you. <laughs> Auburn is, is such a unique place, but it's, it's a special place and nobody knows that better than you. 
Brian Harson stepped in as someone who spent 22 of the last 25 years at Boise State. What's the biggest piece of advice that you'd give him to be able to have success at Auburn? Without question is he cannot pay attention to the outside and external distractions because there's so many of them. He, he's going to have to stay locked in and stay true to who he the, – the way he, you know, was able to accumulate so much success at Boise – the nuts and bolts of that will carry over here in Auburn, but there are going to have to be adjustments. There's going to be adjustments with time commitments. There's going to be adjustments with um, recruiting. Uh, there's going to be adjustments to the type of players that he's going to be coaching here uh, versus the type of player that he had at Boise. A lot of these guys are going to be from the deep south. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, it's just a, a different type of of young man and so but he's got to stay true to who he is uh he doesn't need to um you know he doesn't need to compromise on anything that he believes but he needs to be able to be ready to adapt and adjust because this is a different place narratives can be built about you quickly which you can pay no attention to you have to just stay singularly focused every day on what it is that you know you need to do and prioritize what you need to do to have to, you know, make you successful. And he's done that and he's done it at a high level. Um, but he's, he is going to have to adapt and adjust to some things here that will be different. You talk about those adjustments. I'm sure that he did some things immediately after he got to Auburn and just beyond the whole, we're going to change the culture thing, which I don't really know how much that you have to do when you inherit a program who went six and four and has had a lot of success over the course of the last decade. Um, I remember you telling the story about how when you got to Iowa State, you changed the, uh, as you called them so delicately, the Ronald McDonald uniforms at Iowa State. Uh, could you tell the story and, and what exactly led to that? Like, what, what's in your mindset where you just, like, looked at that and said, yeah, that, that's got to go? Well, when I came in there, the first thing that I, you know, that I addressed with the players is their commitment to what we needed to do to win from a in-the-building standpoint, meaning in the weight room, their commitment in the, in the classroom, uh, their commitment to watching film, the commitment to uh, you know, being a great teammate, the commitment to um, you know, the day-in, day-out grind that it takes to, to be the best player you can be to in then turn in turn then make our team better right so i really really harped on that and i i told them how difficult it was going to be and you know that when this is all said and done there's there's probably going to be some of them in here that you know are going to say this this isn't for me this isn't what you know i wanted but i had come from a lot of different ways to win championships in my background and you know i i felt like the formula that i had was the one that i believed in and it was the right one well, in the same sentence, I also felt like if we were going to ask them and demand of them these things, then we need to treat them like, you know, we need to treat them like every other Division One school that is a championship caliber school is going to treat these guys. Everything from the food they ate to the hotel we stayed in the night before the game to the buses that we traveled in, I changed all of that, Connor. 
I thought, you know, I, I thought at the time, and Jamie Pollard was phenomenal, but he had only been there one year. And he said, what do you need? And I went through every single thing on my checklist. We were on raggedy buses. We changed our bus line. I wanted them to get on buses right now where they felt like, you know what, this is what the champions of the Big 12 travel in. I didn't want them to sleep in a hotel that was, you know, seemingly to me, uh, one that, you know, a lot of these guys hadn't even been on the road. They've, they've never even done that. I wanted them to be in a place that was nice where they can look around and go, wow, you know, these guys are really treating us first class because if we're going to demand all of that out of you, then we're going to treat you with respect. And the planes we flew, the pregame meals we ate, uh, and it, and it, it went all the way down to the uniforms that we wore. And, and I just told Jamie after the first year, I said, you know, th- these, we can do better than this. We can do better. So we got together with Nike and we got together with, we actually solicited the public for opinions to send in drawings of what they wanted this Iowa state uniform to look like. We took all comers. We literally solicited everybody's opinion. Then we took what we thought was the best thing, and we, you know, did it with Nike in conjunction with Nike because obviously they were our they were the our sponsor. And the Iowa State logo that you see today on their helmets is the one that we created back then through Jamie, myself, and the fan base. That's how the Iowa State emblem that you see today because i told jamie i said this thing's changed so many times over the years we we need to get something solid we need to get something that'll stand the test of time and uh it's funny because when i watch them play and you know dari and chris Doring and i laugh about it all the time because i told them that story and they give me so much grief behind the scenes when we're when we're on a saturday watching iowa state play and then i'll just jokingly say hey guys Look at that emblem. Isn't that sharp? You guys like that? Emblem? <laughs> I wonder where that came from. Uh, but um, you know, but that's how we came to that because again, the demand that we were going to put on the players, I felt warranted that in return we treat those players with the utmost respect because I felt like they earned it. And I don't think people realize how tough of a job these guys have in college football uh, of being a college football athlete. And uh, so we wanted to make sure that we returned the respect to them that they were giving to us by doing exactly what we asked them to do. So basically when everybody's watching Iowa state in the playoff this year, because they're absolutely loaded, Matt Campbell returns so much talent. Every single time you look at that logo, you think to yourself, Gene Chizik made that happen. That's, that's it right there. That's, that's what, all right, we, we started that right now. So that's, that's going to be on the minds of SEC fans for sure. Um, this this is going to be coming out on signing day, so I've always always kind of wondered this, and maybe your answer to this has changed over the years. But what's the biggest signing day regret of your career? And maybe not regret, but what's the one miss that you still sort of kick yourself about? Boy, that's a great question. The one miss, uh, it's probably somebody I lost to Alabama, but I'm I'm losing track on who that could be. <laughs> Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question, uh, Connor. I mean, uh, I'd have to dig back deep and, and see, you know, most signing days, I, I thought we were really pleased with, 
um, I thought we were really pleased with with what we got. Um, it was I'll tell you one what it was. Um, we had a kid out of Maryland, um, Cyrus Quanjo, that um, committed to us on national TV, and uh, his brother played at Alabama at the time. And his parents were not in at all for those two splitting up. He wanted the brothers to play together. And uh, they were a family that was huge into family values, huge into uh, just the fact that, um, you know, family sticks together. Um, That's what their roots were. And he committed to us, and I felt like we absolutely had it locked. But we never, ever got the signed piece of paper. And he did it on national TV. He committed to us and uh, ended up going to Alabama. And he would have been a – I think he was either first or second-round draft pick, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But I may be wrong on that. But um, he ended up being a really, really good player for Alabama. And he would have been a really good player for us. And we had Greg Robinson, who was the second pick of the draft, at one tackle. And we would have had him at the other. So uh, that would have been a pretty good pair. But that's one that jumps out at me that we we got, but we didn't ultimately get, if that makes sense. What about the reverse of that? What about the one that you you knew? You're like, I, we, we've got something here. This is a guy that maybe, maybe some teams tried to come in late on him, and it was a commitment that you had to keep. You weren't sure if you were going to keep him or if it was somebody that you yourself poached at the last minute. What was the one that stands out? where you kind of saw it play out, you saw him become a, a quality player, and you're like, I, I'm so glad that we did all the legwork needed to be able to get that guy. Boy, there there was a lot of those. Greg Robinson, who I just spoke of, was one of those, because we took him right out of LSU's backyard. I mean, he was 30 minutes from LSU, uh, born and raised in Louisiana. Uh, Trevon Reed's another one that we, we took um, that we were able to pull out of, out of Louisiana. And let me tell you something, when you're in there battling LSU in their backyard for the best players in the state, um, that's, that's a tall order. That's a tall task. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we weren't sure on signing day exactly how that was going to unfold. It was one of those deals where we were trying to, you know, we were holding our breath till we literally got, you know, the, the, I guess back in that day, the facts in, you know what I mean? But, um, those two were, those those were, those were touch and go the entire time, and uh, they, they were really, you know, they were really difficult uh, signees to, you know, to follow through with and to get, and but, uh, you know, those those are two that stand out in my mind just because how difficult it was to pull guys out of that state. We were able to do that, uh, and, um, you know, as I look back recruiting the state of Alabama was so tough because when we came in in 2009, Nick had kind of cornered the market on, uh, you know, recruiting the state. I think Auburn had fell down a lot and being able to, you know, uh, being able to sign some guys in the state that, uh, that Alabama wanted was, uh, was, was critical and crucial uh, to our recruiting and, you know, so those, those wins on signing day were always huge. I've been trying to wrap my head around the buyout dynamic a lot lately. And it was something I talked about on the podcast last week. Uh, we, we chatted about this a little bit when we talked last week as well. And you brought something up that is 
really, I mean, it's at the root of this and it's at the root of so much is it's basic supply and demand. You've been in that situation where you got a new deal on two different occasions with two different Power 5 programs. How much was the buyout part of that negotiation? And was that something that you thought showed good faith from the administration when it, it was raised on your new deals? Or was that just kind of an afterthought that really in the last 10 years, now it's drastically changed how we view that in the negotiation process? Well, the first the, the first head coaching job I, I had at Iowa State, you know, that was really an afterthought to me. I mean, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, I'm not worried about what the buyout is, I, you know. A, I wasn't worried about what the buyout was if I was leaving because in my mind I was going to be at Iowa State for ten years. That I mean I don't ever take a job thinking, well I want to make sure that you know we have great language in there for me to be able to leave, and make it you know doable for another school to buy to buy me out. A, so I never thought that way. And then you know, I never thought about you know if I were to be let go. Uh, at Iowa State, I never thought that. When I got to Auburn, it changed, Connor, because I had been at Auburn, and I knew the volatility of the job. I knew that you can be here one day with, you know, in great graces, and the next day, um, you know, Alabama can beat you, and you can be fired. And that's just the reality of the job. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that over the test of time, that's been true. And so, I was much more conscientious of what the buyouts were uh, should I get released uh, in my in my contracts at Auburn, particularly my second one. And my second contract that I signed after we won the national championship, uh, you know, I was very conscientious of what that looked like on the buyout end. Again, not for me. If I were to leave, because in my mind, I was never leaving Auburn. And but it was more from the perspective of if I get let go, what does that look like? And I wanted to make sure that, you know, that that part of the deal uh, was solid. And to be honest with you, you know, when when I got let go in 2012, um, the buyout for me at that time was kind of you know, almost unheard of. And, you know, people were, you know, amazed that, you know, people are willing to pay that much money. And now that's, that's nothing. And you can see in the, in the last eight years, so that was eight years ago. So in eight seasons, it's completely changed. I mean, Auburn eight years later has a $21 million buyout and that they actually paid or in the process of still paying. Uh, and they're not the only ones look at Arkansas. Um, you know, look at, look at, uh, I mean, I can, I can go down the list of people that are paying over and over again. I mean, Arkansas has paid twice uh, in the last, what, six, seven years between yeah. Brett Bielma uh, and Chad Moore. So, but the buyouts now are enormous for coaches when they go into contract negotiations because everything has become such a three-year deal. I mean, I mean, look, you have about a three-year window as a head coach, and you better get in there and show a lot of promise. Uh, win a lot of games or and or championships within three years or you know there's a great opportunity or there's a great chance that you know that they can cut you loose and you go in there knowing that and that's why I think you see a lot of agents nowadays really paying a lot of attention to what the buyouts are because your leash is much shorter nowadays than it used to be.
As a defensive-minded guy, I can't imagine what it was like watching this last season play out. Besides the fact that it felt like offenses just pretty much dominated for so much of the year, you look at what happened after the season. Three of the four SEC head coaches who were fired were defensive-minded guys. It's now 10-4 to in terms of offensive-minded versus defensive-minded head coaches in the SEC. Everyone always says that eventually the defense catches up to what the offense is doing. But I, I think we've, I mean, we've never seen offense at rates like this in the SEC. Because of the rule changes, do we now need to assume that even if the defenses do figure some things out, that the SEC is just going to be more offensive focused moving forward? I think it will be. I don't think there's any question. I, I think because of the rules, because of the way the game is designed and everybody is going in that direction, right? Spread the field from sideline to sideline. You know, have your RPO game, your run uh, pass option games built in so that the defense can't be right. Um, you know, balls are, you know, the balls, 80% of the game is played on the hash, so you have a wide side of the field where you can really stretch those things out uh, and put pressure on the defense. And, you know, people now with tempo and snapping the ball as fast as they can, now you're eliminating some of the defensive design that you know that made defenses great back in the day when they huddled broke the huddle you saw what they were in and then you you had a great defense to match it you can't necessarily do that as much anymore so i think there's a lot of ways that offenses have figured out how to have advantages over the defense now do i think the defenses will catch up yes uh do i think that it will look like it used to look where you're looking at you know 17 10 games no, I don't think you're going to see a lot of those. I think you're looking at offenses that understand the value of having dual-threat quarterbacks if they can. Uh, if they can't, no problem. We can still take advantage of, you know, it used to be, um, you know, back when we had Cam and, you know, Gus had Nick Marshall and, you know, you can go down the line of other schools that had athletic guys at the quarterback spot seven, eight years ago uh, where, we, you know, we were tearing the league up because it was a quarterback run game and the athletic quarterback, uh, along with all the things that I just mentioned, right? Tempo, spreading the field out, all of those things. Well, now, since the, the run-pass option game has come in so uh, predominantly with just about every offense out there, you don't have to have an athletic quarterback. Run-pass option doesn't mean that the, the run portion is quarterback runs. It means that it's still tailback run game with options for the quarterback to throw based on what he sees the reaction is from the defense. And there's a lot of different ideas to that. People think it's the one way. You know, we fake it, we read a guy, he runs a little, you know, bender route behind the guy and we hit him. That, that's not necessarily – there's all kinds of ways for run-pass options out there. I mean, you talk to offensive guys, there are – a, a, a litany of ways that you can incorporate the run-pass option game to give offenses the advantage in simple numbers. And, and they've done a great job figuring out those, those ways. Now defense has got to do a figure out a way to, you know, when I was a defensive coordinator at North Carolina, I went into games and said, you can have run-pass options, but I would tell my defense, there's no run-pass option. We're taking one of those and we're making them do the other. So if I was going to take away the pass, we're make, there's no run-pass option. They're running the ball. 
because we're taking away the pass option. So, you know, when people start looking at, you know, how they want to defend these things, I think they'll eventually catch up. But uh, it's not like it's going to be an overnight thing because the offense still has tempo that still has the the wide side of the field to work with, and they still have a lot of ways to run uh, your your RPO game. So uh, defenses are behind, uh, but it doesn't mean they can't catch up to a degree. But I still think good offenses with really good quarterbacks, I still think you're going to see high-scoring offenses. Yeah, and it's, it's, it was interesting hearing Alabama talk about that. I know with Pete Golding, there was criticism that a lot of times he would be trying to get everybody into the perfect formation, the perfect call when they're running tempo and they're doing RPO stuff. And sometimes there just isn't that perfect call and you can't adjust to that. And it creates this this miscommunication and making that adjustment as a defensive coordinator. It's like some, some are willing to do that and some have adapted to that. And others have just kind of accepted, look, you're just not going to shut down offenses in the same sort of way. You've kind of got to play your card and then they're going to be able to, to, to react to that. And the rule changes certainly don't necessarily help that. The rule change that I think everybody wants to see this offseason, targeting. You you are the voice of reason in so, so many ways. How would you fix targeting? Yeah, I just think there's got to be levels, Connor. I think there's got to be levels. I don't like that you're ejecting a young man. Um, I mean, think about it. It just breaks my heart when I sit and I look at championship games. And here you are in the first quarter. And, and look, I've been a defensive guy, and uh, – forever and there's some things that are so instinctual that these guys just can't pull off there there's there's no intent to harm uh there's no intent to you know uh hit you know a player uh in a defenseless area head neck or shoulder but sometimes some of these calls and i get that and i'm i'm all for player safety but there are some calls out there that you know and you've seen them where you're shaking your head and you're saying, A, I don't see how that's targeting. Okay, we've seen those. Or B, uh, God, I know that was targeting, but, man, there was no intent. He couldn't pull off. He was running full speed. You know, he tried to, you know, he tried to you know, lessen the blow and, you know, all those things. And so, you know, I think that there's got to be – the levels part of that, you know, the targeting rule, you know, there's nothing wrong with, okay, if, if, if you have levels and the officiating crew's got to figure out what that looks like and all of the, the wording and exactly how you're going to, you know, you're going to frame that so that it's definitive one way or the other, right? Level one, level two, level three, however they do it. But you know you've seen targetings where it doesn't even look – I mean, yes, to the, to the letter of the law, I guess it's targeting, but, it, you know, it wasn't, you know, one of those hits that was trying to take a player out. I think a 15-yard penalty uh, of some sort is fine and leave him in the game. I mean, when you get targeting in the NFL, they don't throw you out of the game. And so That's a good point. I think there's got to be levels and ways uh, to, to keep the game safe, but don't penalize player for what is, is not a malicious intent of a hit. And I just think you have to find a way to do that. 
players are going to feel bad enough too, right? I mean, players players feel bad when they have a 15-yard penalty call against them, and they're probably every time they come over when they come over the sideline after that play, they're going to get a good talking to. So I've I've never really bought into this belief of you need to make the penalty that severe, and that shows that you're really putting your foot down and making an effort to to in you know to improve player safety when it's like well no I mean that's not necessarily just the only way you can go about it I, I agree 100% there has to be levels for doing this it, it's pretty crazy that there are eight SEC coaches who will be in year one or year two this season the stock market that's that's like the hot thing these days that all the kids are talking about so let's use that that analogy which one of these eight SEC head coaches who are either in year one or year two are you buying the most shares of? Wow, that's a good question. Um, year one, let's go with the year one guys first. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what Josh Heupel does at Tennessee simply because of the offensive acumen. What he's done at Central Florida has been really good. You know, he went and met with, you know, what with the Baylor guys years ago, and he's really incorporated what Art Browse and those guys did back at Baylor in the day when Baylor was just, uh, you know, lighting up every, you know, statistically speaking, lighting up every, every record that Baylor ever thought about having, running it, throwing it. Talk about guys that really take, uh, you know, advantage of the spatial, you know, scenarios in college football. They're the best at it. And what he did at Central Florida offensively was great. Um, I, I, I can't say that I'm buying stock in it. I, I think it's extremely interesting. Um, I'm buying stock in Sam Pittman when you look at a second-year guy. Uh, I like what Sam Pittman's doing. And, and, and I think that, you know, even though they went, I think they were 3-7 and seven this year, I think you could make an argument. You could have actually made an argument for him as one of the coaches of the year. Uh, and I know that sounds crazy going three and seven, but it was the way they played. You know, I, I look at the players that they were <clears throat> that they were playing with in many games, Connor. And you talk about being outmatched in terms of player for player, but you talk about you know I love the, you know the hires that he made with Barry Odom. I think Barry's made a tremendous difference on the impact defensively because they were undersized, they were outmanned, they were out you know skilled in a lot of ways. And I'm going to tell you, man, they were in the right spots. They played extremely hard when you put on the film. I, I texted Barry during the year several times and just said, wow, your defense is really impressive with the way they play. And I think Sam Pittman's one of those guys who's going to be an incredible recruiter. I think Kendall Browles, I mean, think what he did with Felipe Franks and the, you know, the progression of the offense in one year. And so, again, as you continue, I know Sam Pittman can recruit. That's that's a no-brainer, and I know the kids will play from for him. And you don't see a bunch of guys transferring out of there, so that that tells me a lot. When you when you don't have a lot of guys entering the transfer portal, and you got a lot of guys coming to you, and your players that could be you know leaving uh, you know early or or they got another year to play and they're all in. Coach, sign me up. Uh, that tells me there's a lot of good things happening. So. Uh, the new guys, it's going to be interesting what Josh Heupel's able to bring. The second-year guys, uh, I'm all about Sam Pittman, and I, you know, I would be remiss to say I'm not all about Eli Drinkwitz either. Uh, I mm. think they went 5-5. Five and five. I think uh, they got a quarterback for the future in Connor ba- uh, Blazelak, uh, Blazelak, and um, 
I, I like the direction that they're headed, and I think he's got a great staff. Uh, he does a great job running the offense. Uh, he had a coordinator change, which will be interesting because he brought in a guy from the NFL. But I like where Missouri is going as well. And, and again, when you talk about second-year head coaches, you're talking about two guys that were kind of obscure hires that nobody saw coming that both mm-hmm. could end up being really, really interesting. Hit the nail on the head. I would have the exact exact same answer. Last question for you, and it's it's more of a please, more than a question, I guess. I know I said earlier that we're going to get another year of you on SEC Network, but there's one scenario that I would totally sign off on. Can you please take the UCF job so that you can move down to Orlando and we can be neighbors? Is that something we can set up? <laughs> hey, you know what's funny, Connor, is is I uh, I was there four years, and uh, that was an amazing place. Uh, my I kind of cut my teeth. Uh, as a coordinator there and at Stephen F. Austin before I actually got into the to the SEC and Big 12 and so on and so on forth. But I enjoyed my four years down there, man. I loved that university. You know, it was really back then we were just trying to make a name for ourselves. We were independent, and we tried to play everybody under the sun. And while I was there, we played Alabama, we played Auburn, we played Georgia, we played Florida, we played Syracuse. We played, I mean, anybody that would play us, you know, we'd play them. We beat Alabama on their homecoming. Uh, we had Auburn beat in Jordan-Hare. Uh, we had Georgia beat at their place. I think we ended up losing 28-27, and I'll still say it was on a bogus holding call that we got. I can remember like it was yesterday. Um, and, I mean, we were giving these people all they wanted uh, with with recruits and, and signees and guys no one ever heard of, but they played with a chip on their shoulder and, uh, you know, I was privileged enough to be able to recruit, you know, guys like Asante Samuels, who ended up being an all-pro forever, played 13 years in the league, I don't know, 12 or 13 probably. And no one ever heard of Asante when I recruited him. But, you know, what? it was just so many people down in South Florida, so many players uh, that you, you can't get them all. And uh, he came for me and started from day one. Travis Fisher, another second-round pick that we had that was just a great player. He's out of Tallahassee. We signed him out of Coffeyville uh, Community College. Um, Elton Patterson. I mean, we had some really, really good players there. And let's not forget about Dante Culpepper, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Dante, Dante was our quarterback, uh, you know, in my first year there. So uh, great memories. Loved every minute of it. Uh, it was a fantastic place. And... Um, you know, that uh, that job's an intriguing job for, for anybody, you know, that, that loves football. All right, that's not a no. That's not a no. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll take the, the Orlando pitch off air. We can do that. I know all good eats <laughs> down here. It's developed a lot. It's developed a lot. You know, people just think it's iDrive and traffic on I-4. It's it's more than that. You know, it's, it's a beautiful place. So we'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the full-on pitch. But, uh, Gene, this has been absolutely awesome. Appreciate the time so so much. Know that you still got a lot going on. You're you're a very busy guy. Maybe soon to be busier guy at UCF. Just saying. Um, but we're gonna have to do this again <laughs> real soon. Thanks again, man. Really appreciate it. Connor, as always, man, it's a pleasure. And anytime, man, I'd be glad to come on. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Appreciate Chizik for coming on. As always. Really just love hearing from that guy. And for what it's worth, you know, I threw out the, the tweet about how I think that he'd be a great fit at UCF and kind of cited his background, 
people forget he interviewed for the Mississippi State job, as I said in the interview. But um, this was something that Mike Bianchi threw out in the Orlando Sentinel two days earlier. So I was far from the first person to suggest that, despite what some of the some of the replies were saying. But you know, I've never been shy about my Chiswick love, and yeah, why wouldn't I love Chiswick to be my neighbor? That'd be that'd be awesome. So something to keep in mind as well. All right, well, we've got something new. Your idea, I love this idea. Hashtag figuring it out. First edition of this, we took to the Twitter streets and threw out a tweet in which I described a little adulting situation. I, on Monday, yeah, it was on Monday, I locked myself out of the house just as I was getting ready to grill. So I had like the burn pan in my hand with like a few things of asparagus from three days ago and like some, you know, meat chard. And I had to walk around my entire house, like outside, I had to like find a way out of my, my fence here, which is locked from, it's locked like with a, with like an actual lock, but the only key is inside the house. So I had to like get a creative way to open that door, which I figured out. Did you break into your um, own house, and, Cotton? I, yes and no. <laughs> like I kind of broke out of my house and then, you know, I come in, in via the garage because you got the keypad and all that stuff. But anyways, it was a good reminder that probably need to keep a spare key somewhere. Um, need to look into doing that. But just another reminder of adulting being hard. So throughout the question, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? We got some good responses. We got some really good responses to this. Um, one of these. So this is from this is from Michael Doyle, who says, I would tell 20-year-old me to enjoy some quality time with my hairline because in about three years, it's going to start to creep in. You know, Michael, that's a good point because hair is one of those things that you don't appreciate it until you don't have it. And I have a buddy who, shout out Anthony Glorioso, one of my groomsmen at my wedding, started losing it when he was 18. 18. And that's just, that's a tough look when you're that young. When you are losing your hair before you can grow a full beard, you're just thinking to yourself, it gets better at some point, right? Like he's leaned into it well. He does like the whole bald look and he does just fine for himself. He does just fine for himself. There's no doubt about that. But man, it's, that's one of those things that I'm very thankful. Shout out to my, my relatives who have blessed me with a, a good full head of hair. But that's a really good point that I don't think you really appreciate it until it's gone. Will, you've got a good full head of hair. you got nothing to worry about, Yeah, right? but see, I can't grow a beard. Mm. Okay. You'll get there. You'll get there one day. <laughs> one day, son. When you turn about 35, that's when the beard really starts coming in. I did the chin strap in high school for a while. My wife still brings this up. I was the kid on the baseball team. And, and I went to high school 2004 through 2008. So that was a bit of a look at the time. The chin strap was pretty in. Um, who was it? It was Jerry McNamara on, uh, on Syracuse. He's a big chin strap guy. Uh, Notre Dame mascot, big chin strap guy. I basically was the Notre Dame mascot. Um, some old pictures on Facebook there that are still up. Not not great, but when you can grow the full beard, do it because shaving the chin strap is just not worth it. What would you rather have? Okay, so I guess you've already answered this question then. The full beard to be able to grow it or to, to like, so let's let's say you have to be bald, but you get the full beard or basically your current situation the hair, but you can't grow the full beard. And this is this is just your situation for, for life. Like this is you're gonna be your your permanent default look as an adult. 
Man, we had like an hour-long fight about this very question in one of my uh, Twitter group chats the other day, and it was hilarious because all the bald dudes were saying they wanted hair, and all the dudes who couldn't grow beards were saying they wanted beards. And it was just chaos because both sides were like, you don't know how good you have it, man. You don't. You don't. And it's, uh, it's really, really difficult to envision what the other side is like, but I feel bad for, for everybody that doesn't have that in their gene pool. Um, some of us are blessed. Some of us are very, very blessed. That didn't sound too arrogant, did it? I hope not. Um, this one from Patrick Mixon. He says, maybe you don't need a cup of queso at Moe's every day. Okay, good point. Fun story. When I was a, I was like a, so I was a junior in college and there was a Moe's in the student union. And there was one day where I pull into my shift doing you know high school newspaper or college newspaper stuff and I'm starving. There's really nothing open. Moe's is the only thing that's open. I had just realized that I liked guacamole. Realized it last year. I go to Moe's and I get myself one of these like, I don't know how many ounces it was. It was too many ounces. It was not a single serving. It was basically like the pre-made stuff you buy at the grocery store that's you know, a full, probably three or four avocados worth. I come back and you know, my future wife is sitting right next to me at the time. We weren't even dating yet. How we ended up dating after this, I'll never know. I polished off the entire thing of guac from Moe's. I haven't had Moe's since then, but I think I had enough that day for a lifetime. And it, 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 it stuck with me for like a solid day and a half, even as like a 20 year old where you can really eat pretty much anything and get away with it. But that was a, that was a moment when I realized I need to probably think twice about what I put in my stomach. I started to say you can't just eat a whole avocado tree, but I don't even know if avocados are grown on trees. So that's... <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. Yes. We're learning things I today. learned something today, too. You're learning stuff. That's good. That's good. Um, Robert Fellows. Robert Fellows, great dude, um, always reaches out on Twitter. He says, uh, fight for her now so you don't have to wait 25 years to marry her. Amen to that. Amen to that. That's just that turns into romantic comedy territory, and you don't want to be the star of your own romantic comedy. You don't want to do that. Jay Park Brannon, he says, call your parents more, tell them how much you love them. Very, very simple and true. But Will, you you're you're like tight with your mom to the point where like you guys like hang like legit hang out, go on trips, just you two all the time. I feel like like I see the the pictures that you post sometimes on Instagram, and I'm like. That's like a good mother-son relationship. For those who are maybe seeking more of that, I mean, maybe you're not. Maybe you're like, I'm good with where I'm at with my mom. What's the biggest piece of advice that you would give those people? I think it's just that, man. It's communication. It's call them up. Just, you know, ask how things are going. At the end of the day, it's like, especially as you get older, you start to almost feel like you bother your parents. But like low-key, they want to parent you more when you're older is what I've figured out. Because when you're... When you're little, it's like expected, but if you call them up and want like some house advice or want like some, you know, like financial advice, they get so excited, man. That's true. That's a really good point. I, I felt like when I was talking to my mom about some of this, some of this house stuff, she just wanted to be a part of it. She, every, you know, she, she's got two houses now, one woman, two houses. Yeah. Sick brag, no big deal. <laughs> uh, but she, she really wanted to, to be a part of it and was like, what kind of, what are you thinking for your couch? What are you thinking for for a rug, you know, what, what kind of loan are you guys getting, you know, all the money down, all of that stuff. And she was like, I mean, heavily, heavily seeking that information. I mean, I don't blame her. It's, 
You know, it's not every day that you actually get to, if, you're, if your kid turns out normal, you actually get to have normal conversations with them, but you don't have the same sort of financial risk that's associated with all that. And you just get to watch from afar. All right, another good one. Uh, John Michael Harris, he says, go to school to be an AC tech. School isn't long and you will always be in need in Florida. Gosh, that is so true. There's a market for people who can fix AC unit, the HVAC market is just, it's got to be booming in, in the entire state of Florida. I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone, even though I only live in central Florida, wherein it's, you know, basically 80 degrees for three quarters of the year. But goodness gracious, man, the, the, the whole vocational thing for college, there are so many people that I always thought were much better suited for that route than the four-year deal where you go into student loan, you got student loan debt that you're still figuring out. And all of that, but there's so much money to be made just by doing that. I don't know. I mean, there's other ways besides just AC tech, but well, I'm sure you have a ton of buddies who are just like, yeah, let me let me do the quickest possible route possible to be able to actually like put my trade to use and start making legit money off of it instead of going into crazy debt. Oh yeah, I mean, I went to tech school. I was out in three years. Um, so yeah, like I, I got a job, like summer internship with SDS and I was covering the magic and going to school during the day. And like, it was just, it was a grind, but yeah, I think for me, like I knew what I wanted to do. And so, I mean, on the AC tech tip, I mean, I told you this at the time, but my AC went out for three months in Atlanta, man, I would have paid the first AC tech that showed up my whole bank account by the end of, it was like July too. So yeah, two pieces of good advice in this one. Too. <laughs> Full sale graduate. Full sale is booming right now. They got the Dan Patrick School of, is that like the School of Broadcasting right now? Is that is that what it's called? Did I butcher that name? No, yeah, that's that's it. And uh, we always get nice little Dan Patrick messages, which is very nice. But yeah, they're expanding. I'm really proud of my alma mater. So yeah. Good for full sale. Good for full sale. Um, Tim Sheeks, he says, I locked myself out of my apartment on the third floor because of a faulty sliding door. It was 9 p.m. on July 3rd to see some fireworks. Took two hours and they basically had to break the door down as it was bolted shut. Oh, I also had just gotten a concussion three days prior. So I think the piece that he wants us to take from this, besides the fact that, like me, he is you know prone to lock himself out of his own home. Concussions are to be taken seriously. It's 2021. If you're just a dude who's locked out of your own home with a concussion, I feel like that's a really bad combination. What are the things that you would do if you were locked out of your home with a concussion? If you've had a concussion before and the things that kind of like run through your mind, which isn't really much during that brief time, not to, you know, not to lessen the seriousness of concussions or anything like that, but I, I would imagine the, the panic that would set in from that would be extreme. Tim Sheeks, I uh, hope you hope you handle it well, man. Hope you handle it well. Um, let's see. Uh, my guy Raymond Parch, he says, brace yourself. The Nebraska Cornhuskers will become one of the worst college football programs in the country for a decade plus. <laughs> Shots fired at a place where I spent two and a half years covering home games. Good old Bo Pelini. Well, you're a big Bo Pelini guy, right? <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a joke on you. And really, it's a joke on me. So look at that. <laughs> No, I, every once in a while I'll get people who, and he's, he's not doing this because he thinks I'm, like, I'm, a, I'm a Nebraska fan. I'm, I'm not, trust me when I say right. I'm not a Nebraska fan. But I get those people that reach out every once in a while that like, think I, I legit like pull for Nebraska. And gosh, search my name on Twitter, and I think I've been like way more critical of Nebraska than any other program over the last two, three years. But 
that just comes with the territory. Um, all right, this is another good one. Uh, so it's CFP for us. Maybe it's for US. College football playoff for us. Sure, why not? He says, enjoy being able to wake up the next day hungover and be able to function because soon the hangovers get stronger and last multiple days. My last legit hangover, last like legit hangover where when the clock rolls past noon and you're still saying to yourself, I don't have it today. This is, I can't just run this off. This is, this is rough. This is going to take a little bit of time. It was New Year's Day going into 2018. Don't get me wrong, New Year's Eve, most overrated holiday there possibly is. But I was back home with my family, we were at my mom's house, and it was, you know, it was, it was all of us. It was, it was my wife, it was um, my future sister-in-law, brother, um, and it was, it was a great time. We had a lot of fun. But that next day, it was, so it was, uh, Georgia was in the Rose Bowl against Oklahoma, of course, unbelievable game. There was the Bama-Clemson semifinal game that night, which ended up actually being like one of the more boring playoff games that we've had. It was kind of like the last prototypical like Bama boring sort of like dominant game in that sense. But the day of football, it did it did its best. It really did. But man, I was I was hurting that day, and I think I ended up. I mean, not to brag or anything. I think I wrote like I wrote off of three games that day. But I was I was feeling it. You hit that point where you realize I only want to eat toast. It is 11.30 in the morning. And I don't know what it's going to take for me to feel like myself, but I I think it, it definitely hits you harder when, when you get older. Like that's the most cliche thing ever. But I, I still think there's something to be said for taking advantage of that time in life when it's not going to totally knock you out. And when you can sort of just be able to get over it by 9 a.m. the next day or something like that. Well, when was the last good, like, we really probably overdid it the night before realization that you had the day after? I went to Philly, like, late 2019, uh, which is a terrible example of uh, adulting because I booked a non-refundable trip to Philly as, like, eight months before, and then I bought my house in that time. And so I closed in my house and then like got on a plane to Philly because it was not refundable. And one of my buddies, we hung out there, but like, I, I would say this, like the thing, I'm sure you've done this like as you get older too, is you start almost scheming out your next day as you're out. You're just yeah. like, oh, okay, dude, I can sleep till 10. I could, this, this game's gonna be on, then this game. And you're just excited to like wake up the next day. <laughs> you, you need that, you need that because that, and that's that's the thing that you don't do when you're when you're like 20 or something like that. I mean, I would have Thursday nights in college where, yeah, I got a 9 a.m. the next day. Doesn't really matter. Just gonna kind of do whatever I, I feel is is needed. Like when you're doing pledge ship or something like that, if you're in a fraternity and you're not working that specific night, don't get me wrong, I'm, I wasn't crazy big into the Greek system, but when that night comes and you're just like, it's we're going all in tonight. We're not leaving anything on the table. Last game of the season. We're getting after it. Yeah, you don't really consider that that next day, but I, I do think that football is probably the best cure for a hangover. My hangover would have been way, way worse that next day had we not had a full day of like legit good football. And that's the other thing too. When you get adrenaline pumping a little bit, I think that's a good hangover cure. People yep. don't talk about that enough. Like if you go to maybe not a theme park, but I don't know, like just have one of your buddies hunt you or something like that. You'll get the <laughs> adrenaline popping in no time. 
I promise <laughs> that. Have one of your buddies hunt you to cure a hangover, like the the, the deadliest game. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's a good book. It's a good read. That now doesn't have to be with a real gun, but you know, if you depending on what the hangover is, if it's tequila, you know, just just go for it. Trust me, there are worse ways to get rid of one. All right, those are really good, really good. Thank you for everybody who sent those in. Um, maybe next week for figuring out, we should do something on a topic. I think we've talked about this before off air, but making friends as an adult. What about that? Man, that's an yeah. interesting subject. <laughs> Got a lot of a lot of thoughts on that. I'm on my my Florida hobbies that I've tried to figure out the the best possible way to go about some of these things over the last couple of years. Oh, before we go, yeah, Super Bowl this weekend. Will besides just saying LSU will win the football game. Um, any, any predictions, Super Bowl this weekend? Um, I'm just going to have fun, man. It's going to be a fun time. Hopefully the Chiefs win because I'm just kind of kind of tired of the whole Brady thing. But, hey, if, if they win, I won't be sad. It's just going to be a great stress-free day. Let's just be the people on Twitter who rip everyone who bet against Tom Brady. And then if the Bucks win, we'll rip everyone who bet against Pat Mahomes. Exactly. Seems like that's just let's just hedge it as hard as possible. Seems like the, the best possible way to go about it. Um, so next week we're going to have a first time guest join the show. Great, great interview with him. Um, God just made made a headline today as well. That's a little, little tease for the people. Super, super pumped about that. If you have not before given us a five-star review, definitely go do that. Make sure that you, you like everything that we do from SDS content. Go to Saturday Down South Podcast Facebook group. Go subscribe. Tell everyone else to subscribe. Subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Will, um, I'm not going to ask you what the people need to remember. I'm just going to say this. Your damn Mullen takes. Um, I, I don't want to say I'm coming to the dark side, but <laughs> I've, uh, I, I think we're closer on the same level. Is, is that fair? Yeah, you, Dan Mullen, the dark side. All right. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Thanks, guys.